0: Good evening everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 22 on the nature of Middle-earth. We're definitely in the home stretch here uh, of the nature of Middle-earth. Uh tonight we're going to be covering uh a, another section of chapters which are fairly miscellaneous. I have to admit I love the miscellaneous chapters. Like some of my favorite uh, there's been some Pretty big stuff that we've been seeing, and some really interesting patterns we've been looking at uh, in the larger work, and you know, in these uh, you know sections which are kind of a little bit more um, tied together, you know, developing particular themes and ideas. But the collections of chapters where it's just like a bunch of random stuff, I really, I, I think, I enjoy that stuff even more, uh, actually. So we're going to get some of that today, which is uh, which is always a lot of fun. So. Um before I start tonight, though, just one quick announcement well okay two quick announcements, but in one general topic, and that is upcoming moots, so we've got um text moot coming up in. A couple days, the day after tomorrow, I'm flying down to Austin, so I'll be seeing folks down there at TechSmoot. Still time to sign up, um, especially for folks who haven't gotten to uh, sign up for the uh, digital attendance yet. Though I, I saw a uh, uh, a physical attendance sign up come in just like a. T- 10 minutes ago, so that's cool. But anyway, text Moot is coming up soon. We'll be down in Austin this weekend, so this coming Saturday, just a couple days from now, uh, we'll be in Austin for TextMoot. Feel free to join us. Don't forget that if you sign up for the Moot, for either the in-person Moot or the digital Moot, you will get access to the full recordings of the whole digital Moot, so if you can't be there for the whole day, or whatever, you can maybe you can't be there at all, you can still sign up, and then you can get access to the recordings after the fact. So... um uh, so please do feel free to join us at TexMoot or at Sunshine Moot, which or both, which is next weekend. So next weekend, the second of April, is Sunshine Moot, and I'll be down in Orlando, Florida, near Orlando, Florida, not in Orlando itself, um, and we'll be uh, we'll be having Sunshine Moot. Um, going to be that both of them are going to be a lot of fun uh really looking forward to getting back on the regional moot trail here in the next couple weeks um you can find the registration for uh either or both of these moots uh on our events page just go to signumuniversity.org events and you will find those another thing you will find there is a reference to MythMoot. MythMoot is coming up soon, uh, getting closer, end of June, uh, our big annual conference, and uh, really excited to see folks. That's in uh, in Virginia, in the vague uh, uh, capital district down there in Virginia, uh, and looking forward to seeing folks. Um, it's our big four-day conference, end of June, uh, down there in Virginia. The reason I wanted to mention that in particular is that this week is the end of the proposals. So, if you want to propose uh, a session of some kind, you want to give a paper, you want to you want to propose some other kind of session, the call for proposals closes on Friday night. So, you've got through Friday uh, to submit a proposal for MythMoot. So, if you're interested in participating in MythMoot, now's the time to make sure that you uh, get in on that. So. Those are the announcements there's also been i've been hearing rumblings about the possibility of Buckeye moot happening in Ohio this year um, so we're uh, i haven't heard final confirmation of that uh, but we're we're looking into that um, i think uh, I think it's likely to happen i think it's likely to happen in May is when we're looking at Buckeye moot uh, so so we'll see um, we'll see uh, uh, what goes down there uh, in Ohio, hoping to get out to Ohio this May uh, and have one, squeeze one more regional moot into the calendar this year uh, before Mythmoot comes around and we start our moot calendar again. Um, so, uh, So there we go. Stephen, I don't remember exactly how long it usually takes after the deadline for paper decisions to be announced. Not long but it's not instantaneous either it's a bit there's a lot to review so it's a bit of a process um but um uh but yeah it's um it's not um uh it's not too uh it's not it's not too far away <laughs> yeah yeah arthur says uh, heading for myth mood whenever we know where it is yeah that's the thing we do have uh, we're in um We're in a fun situation with Mithmuth this year. Uh, Our normal venue, the National Conference Center, has been dedicated recently uh, to housing um, uh, refugees from Afghanistan. Um, Thousands of children, actually, uh, child refugees from Afghanistan, are being housed at our normal venue. Which, I mean, the first thing any of us who have been there, and we've been there now for several years, those of us who've been there before, I think most of us, our immediate response was that 's brilliant <laughs> it 's an awesome, awesome location for uh uh for juvenile refugees um, so anyway we're we're we 've kind of given our normal venue uh to uh this bunch of refugees and um we 're excited that that 's going to be happening and they uh, the national conference center has been awesome they 've been so cool and they 're helping us to secure another location and we 've been we've been we 're in finalizing exactly the deal of how that's going to go down and where we're going to be so it's totally happening nothing to worry about um but we are relocating uh and uh, the final details of that will be um uh will be uh will be released soon um so uh anyway there we go um but there we are. All right. So anyway, lots of exciting moot stuff coming up. By the way, might as well also mention because we're going to have uh, the registration open for this actually fairly soon. Um, we have OzMoot happening next year uh, in January of 2023. We're going to do our first regional moot in Australia. Uh, so we're going to be down at the university at the uh, the, uh, the University of Queensland in Brisbane is where where it's going to be hosted, um, and uh, we're going to have our first ever southern hemispherical moot uh, which is going to be really really fun so um, I don't have the exact date yet um, but um, but definitely um, in, in January uh, January of 2023 um, I think near the end of that uh, near the end of that um, month but we'll have the final details posted uh, pretty soon there um, so anyway it's, I, that's going to be awesome. I can't wait to go down and have a regional moot where the stars are strange. Um, I've never been to the Southern Hemisphere in my whole life, so that's going to be a really fun trip. Uh, and uh, looking forward to, uh, to going to Australia, meeting some folks out there, uh, and having a really great moot. I'm looking forward to meeting folks from the university down there, the University of Queensland, um, because uh, it's, uh, they sound like they're putting together some really fun stuff down there. Uh, going to be really, Going to be really cool stuff. So uh, anyway, yes, Osmoot happening in January of next year. So lots of fun, lots of fun uh, um, moot stuff uh, going on. And we're hoping, my hope is that this coming fall, um, we will be able to get uh, Europe Back into circulation. It's been a while since we've been able. It's been since Nadermoot. Um, in golly, when was that? Twenty nineteen, I think it was Nadermoot. Um, that was the last time we've been over to Europe for a moot, and so we're looking into some possibilities. We're looking into a possibility, and uh, we've got Wales, Germany, and Sweden all potentially in the uh, in the mix. There, um, we'll see where we end up this fall. But uh, anyway, it's going to be it, it, it's going to be cool. So uh, this next year's. Moot cycle should be even more fun than this year. Um, so there we go. Um, yes, Greg, uh, New Zealand, we've been thinking about that. Um, I don't know that we're going to try to blend that with the Australia moot because that's still kind of a trip uh, from there. But um, yeah, a um, a location tour in New Zealand combined with a Kiwi moot is something that's been, we've been working on that for a while. We haven't found exactly the right uh, combination of circumstances yet, but we 're still hopeful that that 's going to happen in the meantime um, fantastic, yes, Frank, absolutely Mythmoot is still going to be somewhere near the does airport, probably nearer uh, actually even than before um, but um, but yeah, still can 't totally confirm the details of that yet, but it's uh, it is it is in process and uh, should be uh, should be very close so um, yeah we 're getting there. All shall be well at Mithmut, uh, and it'll be it'll be great. Okay, let's get back into the text, because I have ambitions for the evening. Uh, I assigned you to read through Chapter 11 of Part 3, and several of you laughed at me when I did. But I actually think we've got a fighting chance at this, so let's see what, how we do. So you remember at the end of last time, we were looking at um, the Valar as sub-creators. And specifically, we you know, a little bit more on just fascinating stuff about sort of the music and the enactment of the music, right? And what was the, um, you know, what part does Iluvatar play and what part do the Valar play, right, in the making of stuff and in the creation of things? Because, of course, one of the things that seems to be at issue there is the fact that you know, no it's not just that evil can't create, no um no created being can create, they can only subcreate. Like the Valar themselves are like we are subcreators, right? Um they're not creators, they're subcreators. And so he was talking about how, you know, Eru creates the stuff and they shape the stuff. But not only that, he was the one who created the patterns right the capital p patterns right the pattern of life life was his invention life and living things were his invention they were in the theme which he propounds to them at first right that comes from him and then they riff on it right so living creatures like animals and plants and things like that um are you know are uh, uh, variations on the theme of life that Iluv- that comes, still comes from Iluvatar. So they're still acting as sub-creators, taking on the one hand his pattern, right, which he established, taking the stuff and bringing those together. Now, that, it seems, is still... That's, it seems to me, where the difference lies between the good guys and the bad guys. right? The good guys can't create either. But they at least can do that right, because of their relationship with Iluvatar, right, because of their submission, to Iluvatar. Um, It's, in a sense, an act of humility for them to take this pattern of life, to sort of accept this pattern of life from Iluvatar and shape things into it and and to use that pattern, right? So where we're starting today is when he kicks in talking about Melkor um, in the context of all of this stuff. Melkor, on the other hand, desired even with passion to make things of his own being restless and unsatisfied with all that he did, were it lawful or unlawful. So melkor it's not that Melkor didn't want to make new things, right? Um, he was passionately desirous uh, of making new things of his own, things that would come just from him, right? Um, and he was restless and unsatisfied with all that he did, were it lawful or unlawful. Within Ea he had small love for anything that had been, desiring always new things and strange. He would ever be altering what he had made and would meddle with the works of other Valar, even changing them if he could or destroying them in wrath if he could not. Though his mind was swift and piercing so that, if he would, he might have surpassed all his brethren in knowledge and understanding of Ea and all that is therein. He was impatient and overweening, believing his powers of mind greater than they were. Too quickly he assumed that he had grasped all the nature of a thing, or all the causes of an an event, and his plans and works often went amiss for that reason. But he learned no wisdom from this, and charged his failures ever upon the malice of the Valar, or the jealousy of Eru. Since he had no love even for the things that he himself made, he came at length to wreck not at all how things had come into being, considering neither their natures nor their purposes. Thus he desired only to possess things, to dominate them, denying to all minds any freedom outside his own will, and to other creatures any value, save as they served his own plans. Thus it was seen in Arda that the things made or designed by Melkor were never new, though at first he strove to make them so, but were imitations or mockeries of works of others. Okay, awesome. This is, there is so much here. Let's try to unpack this a little bit. This is amazing stuff right here, right? Um, I think this is this is sort of Tolkien as moral philosopher operating on a really high level, frankly, here. Um, and... I think that one of the things... We can see this in many places. Um, It's one of the things that I think has always given to the Lord of the Rings um, a great deal of its power and impact is the insight that Tolkien has. His wisdom, basically Tolkien's wisdom in understanding evil, right? and understanding what it is and how it works, right? Again, it's it's a... um, there's a certain grim irony to the fact that one of the great criticisms lev- levied against Tolkien by people who don't understand and often haven't even read him is that you know his Tolkien's full of these totally black and totally white characters, right, with no shades of gray and no dimensions. Um, I, I, it's a I, more ignorant thing has never been said about Tolkien. The whole The Ring is the atomic bomb allegory is far more intelligent and sophisticated than that criticism not only is that not true again it's it's the, it's instead it's a deep irony that that accusation uh, is leveled against tolkien and his works because he shows consistently and throughout the lord of the rings a more subtle understanding of temptation and the progress for how one gets from um, I, I, know, I know almost no other works of art that have done a better job of showing how a strong, good person um, with right intentions can, in the pursuit of those intentions, become a villain. Um, that is a very difficult thing to do, and Tolkien does it extraordinarily well. And this set of paragraphs, I think, um, this set of paragraphs... Shows how carefully he is thinking about this. Um, What we get from Melkor's psychology here I think is absolutely remarkable. How does Melkor get to where he gets? And you'll notice where he ends up, right? Notice just, like, read the first sentence and the last sentence of this passage, right? We start with, Melkor desired even with passion to make things of his own, being restless and unsatisfied with all that he did, right? What he most wants is to make something new, right? Desiring always new things and strange, he says in sentence two, being ahead to sentence two, right? That's his fundamental desire. Where does he end up? In pursuit of that desire. Where does that desire lead him? Thus it was seen in Arda. Last sentence. Thus it was seen in Arda that the things made or designed by Melkor were never new, but were imitations or mockeries of the works of others. That's, that's what that's, amazing, right? Um, and that he can, that he manages, that Tolkien manages, not Melkor, that Tolkien manages uh, to connect those dots in a way which I find really compelling psychologically, spiritually, I think it's fascinating, right? Um, again, I think that Tolkien's, Tolkien's insight here is altogether remarkable. So let's follow these steps. How do we get from point A to point B? Here, how does Melkor get from point A to point B? So, okay, you start with the passionate desire to make things of his own, right? That in itself, of course, we can see is a reflection of his maker, Right. The creative impulse is put into him by Iluvatar himself. It is a reflection of Iluvatar's own creative power. Right. Um, And of course, in this, he could have said the same thing that Aule said in Aule's conversation with Iluvatar after the making of the dwarves. Right. That his desire to make things was put into his heart by Eru. Right. Right. Melkor could say the same thing, right? Melkor has the subcreative impulse as strongly, as passionately as anybody else. So he pursues that passion. Nothing wrong with that, right? Probably nothing wrong with that. Within AI, he had small love for anything that had been, desiring always new things and strange. So, what's the first step? What's the first danger signal? Well, I think the first angel's danger, danger signum, signal actually is passion. In that, first. it's not a red flag, but it's like a yellow flag. In that first sentence, he had desired even with passion to make things of his own. The passion of his desire is a again. I, I wouldn't call it a yellow flag, but I think it is a. Uh, I wouldn't call it a red flag, but I, I think it is a yellow flag. Right? Do you see why the Melkor's passion? Is a is a yellow flag. We have to um, we have to be a little careful here. Uh, we have to kind of uh, get a little bit outside our own associations in our culture generally in the modern world. Uh, somebody who feels passionately about something that's almost always a good thing, right? Um, I mean, of course, it's not a good thing if, I, you know, you feel passionately about like your desire to kick puppies or something like that's not good. Right. But, um, but assuming that the thing you have a passion for is itself, at least not horrible, right? Not, not a bad thing. Then feeling passionate about it generally is uh, accepted as being a good thing. Right. Um, But passion is a yellow flag. It's not a red flag. It's not that passion is horrible. But it's a yellow flag um uh, why what, does anyone know why we're uneasy about why we distrust passion in uh in the middle ages especially why in the middle ages, which of course we're basing a lot of their um, you know 're basing their morality on a combination of of uh, uh you know saint Paul and Aristotle essentially um uh, yet we do get the the doctrine of the mean from Aristotle, Alyssa. So it's true that um, an ex, you know, any kind of extremity, right, is uh, probably to be avoided. But of course, Alyssa, the classic counter argument, well, qualification. I'll say qualification, not counter argument. Qualification to Aristotle's teaching about the golden mean comes from Saint Augustine, who says, of course. It's not true that the golden mean is always best, right? Um that is to say like uh Christian morality does not imply one should have a moderate amount of lust, right? Or 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 harbor only a reasonable amount of hatred in one's heart, right? Um there are some things which are simply wrong, right? And other things which are simply good. It similarly, you know, it's not you know, it is. it makes no part of, of, of Christian morality to say, temper your charity, right? You should have only a moderate amount of charity towards others, right? That's that's not, uh, you know, your caritas, your love for your neighbor. Don't let that get carried away, right? Again, so um, the there were many Christian moralists following Augustine who said, okay, right, like, we can't just apply the gold mean to everything. Like, it doesn't quite work that way. But... Um, uh, <laughs> right. uh yeah, right. audio flader- audio flad- flagellator says kick every other puppy right yeah exactly that would be the golden mean approach to puppy ki- to the puppy kicking passion right exactly exactly okay um <laughs> anyway um so right so that that that's 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 part of it but again so uh, think about again passion um exactly devorah the issue there is that Passion should be subjected to reason, right? Reason was, again, in the Middle Ages, reason is the image of God inside humans, right? So the problem with passion is that, um, if you think about, like, grammatically what it means, like to be, like the passive versus the active, right? Um, Passivity is involved, like it's the same root, it's the same idea, right? Um, If you are experiencing passions, Inasmuch as you are experiencing passion, it means you're not driving the bus. Well, your reason, anyway, is not driving. If you are the bus, right, and your reason is supposed to be driving that bus. Inasmuch as you are overwhelmed by your passions, reason is not driving your bus, and you cannot trust your passions to drive. They are terrible bus drivers, right? Only reason should be allowed to drive your bus. And if reason is not driving your bus, then you are... um, your bus is, is, is definitely going down the wrong road if it's staying on the road at all. Um, and um, uh, anyway, so, uh, so yes, passion. That's why passion, again, it's not a red flag because sometimes passion can be appropriate. Um, again, it's not that emotion is bad, but to say I am being governed by my passions means essentially I'm letting my feelings control me. Control my reason. I'm 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 allowing my reason to be overwhelmed, and that's probably bad, um, or at least very dangerous. Because if it's if your passions lead you in positive directions, they can't be trusted to do that at all times, right? So that's our first hint that Melkor is not under control. Right? He desires even with passion to make things of his own. The desire. Not wrong. Making things of his... Again, it's, it's, that's in his, his spiritual DNA, right? That he gets from Eru himself. But his passion, yellow flag, and notice what it leads to. Restless, being restless and unsatisfied with all that he did. Restless and unsatisfied with all that he did. If his desire to make new things leads him to be continually unsatisfied with everything that he does make, because it's not good enough, because it's not new enough, because it's not, you know, he's not yet done the thing yet, right? That also suggests he's, he's beginning. He's in danger, at least, already, right, of wandering from this path. Um, if you, if as a sub-creator, this I think is, is a, a, an interesting. There are many applications here, right? Melkor is the biggest example. Melkor is the you know he dramatizes this, the parting of the path, in the biggest terms, right? But we see that played out again and again and again, especially with other sub creators. Remember, this is a very persistent thing in Tolkien. Who's at most danger, right? We'll find the greatest artisan the greatest artist in any particular story, and you'll find the person who is most in danger, right? Um, It's Aule and Feanor and Saruman, right? And Aeol and, I mean, all of the craftsmen and artists, if you are very distinguished, right? Celebrimbor. Um, Now, not all of those that I just listed all went horribly bad, Right? Some of them either didn't go too far or repented um but all of them were tempted, and all of them slipped at least some of them recovered from it, right, but they all slipped um so this is sort of the model um that we have right um and we can better understand feanor and you know even again even a o like we can we get we can get pretty far down the line um You know, I wonder if this can even help us to understand Lotho Pimple going further, well, further down the line, right? Um, But again, it's a pattern that we can see all the way through. So, Okay, so if you are an an, an artist, right, if you're a sub-creator and you find yourself continually restless and unsatisfied with all that you do, I think, well... Is, is there an orange flag? <laughs> right, we're, we're the flag is the flag is moving down the spectrum now from yellow towards red already, and we're still in the first sentence, right? Within AI, he had small love for anything that had been. That's now, now we're this is a full on red flag, right? Full on red flag. Small love for anything that had been. Okay, the desire for things new and strange. There's nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly fine. Again, that's the sub-creative impulse in him. He wants to make new things. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that's wrong. Um, You know one of the things that this paragraph makes me think, and I've never really done this, is imagine, what was Melkor's job? I mean, like, what was he meant to do? If he hadn't fallen, what would his role have been? Melkor. I mean, I I I think I myself have always spent so much time, you know, f- fixated on how he messes things up, right? I mean, he's the one who's responsible for Arda Mard, and so therefore, um, you know, like his job would be like not to mar things, right? Like, don't screw it up, Melkor, please, right? And so, again, we imagine Arda unmarred, and there's all this discussion of what Arda unmarred would have been like, right? But that's a mere negative. Unmarred is a mere negative, right? Surely Melkor's fall not only means that Melkor's actively messing things up. It does mean that, right? But it means more than that, too. Not only is Melkor now actively screwing things up, we also now have the absence of whatever it was he was supposed to contribute, which was presumably something, right? You know, presumably he had a job. Uh, He had a role, a significant role uh, in this. Um, And, you know, I think that... um, uh, I think that... That's something I said I think it's something I haven't thought enough about, but I wonder if we learn more in this paragraph here um than I think we might have in other places that is, I suspect that his desire to make new and strange things I think that's part of how he was wired, you know, I think that that's part of um what he was meant. To be and to do. Um, I can't help but think about, again, I get the stuff that we, was just under discussion here earlier in part three, chapter three uh, the subcreation of the Valar, right? And the patterns of life that Eru propounded, and then how they, the Valar, um, made use of the material, right? Uh, the materials that were brought into being by Eru. they combined the the stuff, right, the matter and the substances with these general patterns. And from that emerged beautiful things, beautiful things and a diversity of beautiful things, right? Because those makings, were happening under the influence of these other minds who all reflected Illuvatar's mind in different ways, right? What if um what if Melkor I wonder if he was maybe meant to be operating on a whole level above that, right? There are some places where um Tolkien suggests that Melkor was not just like slightly more powerful than Manway, but like substantially more power, th- more powerful than all of them, right? There are some places where Tolkien—we suggest- looked at some of these in uh, Morgoth Ring—when um, Tolkien seems forced to that conclusion, like that Melkor was at least one, maybe two, orders of magnitude more powerful than the rest of the Valar. Um, he he's almost forced to that conclusion based on how thoroughly he manages to. He's not just like the saboteur of Arda, right? Um, the way that he manages to—I mean, he kind of is—but like on a scale that is so great compared to the scale of the operations of any other single Valar that it seems um, he must be really operating on a completely um, on a completely different level of power, right, of strength originally, before he diminishes himself. Um, If that were the case, who knows, right? Who knows what, you know, the way in which, if Melkor's desire to make things of his own, if his passion for new things and strange had been lawfully focused, had been submitted, right, in humility, Um, to Eru's patterns and stuff like the other Valar submitted to that Um, what might have happened what could the world have been like Um, I don't know but um, anyway I think it's uh, um, fascinating to think about and this paragraph kind of stimulates my thinking in that direction you know about that more than anything I've ever read uh, from Tolkien. Anyway, well, let's keep going. Oh, I, but I was saying the seriously red flag here is his small love for anything that had been. Right? And what does it show us exactly? It's, it's clearly wrong, right? When you are looking at things that have already been created or things that have been created by other people and you're like, yeah, whatever. I can't be bothered. I'm just thinking about the next new thing, right? I don't care about that. Then you've, you're, you've missed the boat, Right. You've missed the boat. You, ha- you are placing your own desire for the making of things above the th- things made at all. Right. Like above the um, ultimately he's thinking of himself more like it's not the love of the, the, the love of the things or even the love of the making. It's himself like the idea of himself as maker that he has begun to care about more than um the and you know you know what that makes me think of um, it makes me think of Saruman calling himself ringmaker right um, one of the things that uh didn't strike me when we were talking about that passage in exploring the lord of the rings um, cuz of course we talked some about Saruman's ring we know that he made himself a ring but we don't have, we don't we ever see it explicitly uh, discussed as being used, but he's wearing it. So, um, it clearly must do something. Um, anyway, so we, 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 of course talked about, speculated about that like we do, uh, in exploring the Lord of the Rings. But one of the things that strikes me reading this and then thinking back to that passage, um, Saruman doesn't talk about his ring. We never learn about his ring all that we learn about is that he is a ringmaker. Like, he can now put that on his resume. Like, now he, you know, he gets, like, a ringmaker badge he can put on his LinkedIn profile, right? That's what Saruman seems to care about. Um, he has small love for anything that had been desiring always new things in like Again, he's thinking about himself. He's thinking about the process. Um, his becoming a ringmaker, and, you know, it's not, it's it's the next ring that he's going to make that he's, uh, that he's focused on. Um, anyway, He would ever be altering what he had made, and would meddle with the works of the other Valar, changing them, if he could, or destroying them in wrath, if he could not. Ever altering what he made, constantly fiddling, never content, never letting it go, always adding to it, always wanting to change it. Sound like anyone you know? And this is an interesting thing, isn't it? because um, yeah, devorah sounds kind of like Niggle, doesn't it? who is Tolkien right um, but of course this sort of self-portrait or this and I, it, it, this I think is why Tolkien was so good on this subject. Um, why his depiction of Melkor and of Sauron and of Saruman are so compelling um, because he can see it, right? He understands the temptations of a sub-creator because he is one, right? And that, I mean, he would ever be altering what he had made. Um, <laughs> thats It's kind of close to home, doesn't it? Uh, Yeah, yeah. He would ever be able... He was never satisfied. He was never satisfied. He was always desiring new things, right? He could not see and appreciate the, the things that were. He had small love for anything that had been, right? He doesn't value what is. He's always wanting to push it into something more, something new. And this includes the work of others. So he sees other people's works. And instead of learning from it, Instead of saying, okay, this is not made by me, and so therefore I could learn more about my fellow creature. I could learn, I, you know, I can see some things in this that I would not see in my own work. I can learn thereby more about my you know, sibling and also more about Aluvatar himself, right? By studying this other thing. And instead of doing that, he's like, I could do better, right? I have some upgrades in mind, right? Um, that's, uh, yeah, yeah, um, definitely a bad sign, but it gets worse, right? He would meddle with the works of their Valar, changing them if he could, or destroying them in wrath if he could not. Okay, so, so see, this is not even, this is not even if I can't have it, nobody else can, right? Um, it's not just possessiveness of that kind. There's even, in a sense, a... Uh, it's worse, really. Right? Uh, somebody who's possessive in that kind of way of other things. There's... Um, there's a, um, a... a warped and twisted echo of humility. Right? Very twisted. Right? But an echo of humility in that kind of possessive love, right? Um, That is finding the value in a thing, right? Giving it a disproportional value. um, In the end, of course, focusing much more on one's own right to have it, one's own possession of it than of the thing itself. It becomes more, that desire becomes more and more corrupted, more and more perverted. And yet the foundation of that is still a desire for the thing, an appreciation of something outside yourself, Right? That's at least the origins of that kind of possessiveness. But Melkor doesn't even go there. Right? Um, He doesn't care about the thing at all. He doesn't value the thing as a thing. He has small love for things. Right? Everything is raw material for him to improve. That's, That's all. And if he can't, if he is thwarted, if his will to renovate, right, to improve to make something new and strange and better is thwarted, then he would rather, he would destroy it in wrath, right, he would rather see it destroyed than not be allowed to, to improve it, change it, and therefore make it his own, right um, and all of this shows his pride his deep, his self focus and his deep lack of humility, right? Though his mind was swift and piercing, so that if he would, he might have surpassed all his brethren in knowledge and understanding of Ea and all that is therein. He's not dumb, right? He does have a swift and piercing mind. He could have, but why doesn't he? Why is it not true that Melkor has a greater knowledge and understanding of Ea and everything in it than any of the other Valar. He could, That could have been true, but it's not true. Why is it not true? He was impatient and overweening, believing his powers of mind greater than they were. He doesn't actually take the time to learn things. He's impatient, wanting to be doing and not to be learning, to be studying, right? Because to to learn, to study something and to learn is in some sense to put yourself below it, right? To put something else at the center and kind of pour your mind into that thing. Submit your mind to that thing in order to understand it and to understand its shape, right? He's too impatient for that. Too overweening, right? Not um, always wanting to put himself highest, to put himself First, and I agree, Devora. To know something, you have to love it or at least respect it. Yes, if you don't respect it, you can't submit yourself to it in that sort of submission of learning. All learning is a, an act, there's submission that needs to happen on some levels, on several levels, often, right? And he won't do that too quickly. He assumed that he had grasped all the nature of a thing or all the causes of an event, right? He thinks he knows. He convinces himself that he knows and that he doesn't need to learn more, that he doesn't need to submit himself, um, believing his own powers of mind greater than they were, right? His plans and works often went amiss for that reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, But he learned no wisdom from this and charged his failures ever upon the malice of the Valar or the jealousy of Eru. Again, in his pride, he has this having elevated himself to the highest place, right? Having, uh, you know, in his heart first and foremost worshiping himself, right? Elevating himself up above Eru. He believes he can't, he won't learn wisdom because to learn wisdom from the failures that he has due to his impatience and overweening, um, to learn from that the, well that would be humbling right? he'd have to admit that he was not the greatest that he still needed to improve right? Um, and therefore that there is something greater than he um, and since that cannot be true there can only be two possible explanations for the failures of his plans right, the malice of his peers or the jealousy of Eru, right, those are the only two things that could possibly explain that um, yeah, and Devorah, I agree. We get the uh, the idea of Eru being jealous of him is really ironic, right? It's this deeply ironic uh, projection, right, onto Eru. But that's exactly, again, that's just, it strikes me as so true. Since he had no love, even for the things that he had himself made, he came at length to wreck not at all how things had come into being. Considering, considering neither their natures nor their purposes. So, since he only cares about the making and the improving, and he doesn't care, actually, about the stuff, he's as quick to destroy things as he is to improve them or to change them, right? It's more about subordinating them to himself than caring anything about them. The first consequence is that he doesn't understand them truly, Right? Um, He neither loves them nor understands them. And since he doesn't love them, and since he doesn't understand them, he doesn't actually consider their nature or their purposes. Thus, he desired only to possess things, to dominate them, right? I merely want to subordinate things to myself. I want everything to recognize that I am the greatest, right? That's, in a way, the next logical step. In another way, just like the... Uh, the full playing out of what was already going on, right? Denying to all minds any freedom outside his own will and to other creatures any value, save as they served his own plans. In the end, it's all about him. He doesn't care about them. It's all about him. So, we come to the, to Melkor crushing conclusion. Where does his desire, passion to make new and strange things lead him? Complete derivativeness, right? Thus it's seen that nothing was ever new, but are only imitations and mockeries of the works of others. Because to make something new requires, in fact, humility, right? Um. He would have had to do the rest of that stuff right. Um, this is remarkable. I, I think this is incredible. And uh, such a wonderful insight into how evil works, right? Um, how did Sauron get to where he is? How did Sauron get to where he is? What is What lies in store... For Galadriel, what is she striking against and what could lead her to that, right? Um, uh, all of these, and this, you know, these are just sort of Lord of the Rings questions, right? But there are many others. How does Fanor go wrong, right? I think when you look back over Fanor's history with this in mind, you can begin to see some yellow flags from earlier on, right? Um, that uh, That line in particular, about uh, seldom were the minds and hands of Feanor at rest. Begins to sound like a yellow flag, doesn't it? Restless and unsatisfied with all that he did. I wonder. Um, But, um... Yeah. Yeah. Um, Another phrase that, um... flashes through my mind when I'm thinking about this, um, is... Gandalf's reference to the minor rings of power, um, the lesser rings, being but essays in the craft. Um, Celebrimbor trying to figure it out, right? Um, being restless and unsatisfied with all that he did, were it lawful or unlawful, on the way towards making, you know, the elven rings and the dwarven rings and the and the and the nine rings, um, uh, you know in combination with Sauron. Uh, not a good look, right? Again, Celebrimbor doesn't have the fall that Fanor does. Um, it's, you know, it's not simple. Celebrimbor is very definitely in a shade of gray, uh, but, uh, but I think we can, we can kind of see that too. Anyway, all right. I've spent plenty of time talking about this slide, which I knew I was going to spend a while on this. Let's jump ahead now to some of the miscellany. The Lembas chapter. Okay, so here's waybread. Art taught by Orame to the three elder women of the elves. I, I presume that means the three wives of like those three original elves, right? Uh, you know, Elf 1, 2, and 3, you remember them? Um, uh, so I guess their wives, the ones that they woke up, um, we, you know, they were supposed to not wake them up, but they did, Uh, Anyway, okay, so Orame teaches them the art of the whey bread. It was made from meal, ground, possibly, wheat corn, specially brought to them by Orame. Now keep in mind, the word corn, uh, in English usage, especially in English usage, um, in older English usage, it just means grain. Um, it doesn't mean corn like maize um like american corn on the cob or something um the 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 word corn it just it means a grain a pe- like that's why like, if you know the king james you see this all over the place right if a corn of wheat fall to the ground it means a seed a kernel uh of uh of wheat uh and so i i think that's very clearly uh what how he uh, Tolkien is using the word corn here that's why wheat corn is hyphenated. It's not some hybrid of wheat and maize or something. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, a wheat grain. It was ground f- made from meal ground wheat corn, specially brought to them by Orame. This western corn, it is said, slowly diminished in virtue on the great journey, owing to the dim sunlight, and there was no more western corn seed left when they arrived in Beleriand. But when the Noldor came back, they brought with them new corn, and it, by a special grace of pity by Manwe and Varda, did not fail, and was still in vigour till the end of the First Age. Galadriel was one of the chief inheritors of it, and of the art. But at the time of the Lord of the Rings, only in Lorien did the western corn survive, and the art was known only to herself and her daughter Celebr- Celebrian, wife of Elrond, and her daughter Arwen. With Galadriel's departure and the death of Arwen, the western corn and waybread were lost forever in Middle-earth. Okay. Okay. What we... I was excited for the making of Lemba's chapter. What I was hoping we were going to get was more about the art, right? There are two things that he points to here, like two things you need in order to make Limbus, right? You need the right ingredients and you need the right recipe, right? The first and essential thing is the ingredient, this Western corn, this Western grain. Um, and, which is a kind of wheat, and, but you, she talks about the art. Galadriel is one of the chief inheritors of it, that is, of the Western corn, and of the art. So she has the recipe, too. The art was known only to herself and her daughter, and her daughter, right? So, Galadriel, Calabrian, and 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 Galadriel, or sorry, and Arwen, know it. Um, uh, yeah. Well, um, well, Spartan, uh, uh, of course, Celeborn doesn't have it. Uh, it's you know, it's 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 not a boy thing. Apparently, this is an elf queen deal, right? Not even just elvish women, but elvish queens. Apparently, um, because of course. The other place where we have reference to it is Melian. Melian knew how to make it too. Um, That is presumably where Galadriel learned the art. Um, But maybe she learned it from her mom or something um, back in Valinor because they did have the western corn over there. Um, Here's the thing. I'm I'm not a big fan of the I was disappointed by this. I'm not going to lie. I was disappointed by this chapter. And here's why I was disappointed. We're told that there are the two things requir- required the ingredient and the art. But it's pretty clear which of the two things is the most essential, right? That is to say, no amount of art is going to do the trick. Um without the Western corn, right? There's this special magic wheat that comes from Valinor, right? It's like Lembus is special bread because it's made with the wheat of the gods. Now, it's true that there's an art, right? And if you don't have the art, presumably you can't do it, howsoever much Western corn you might have. But see, there the emphasis that's placed on the Western corn throughout these passages uh, in this chapter suggests to me that uh, it really is essentially the corn. It's, it's about the seed, right? Um, The Western corn is itself very special, right? Is this special blessed grain brought from the West by Orame gifted to the elves And then, like, re-gifted. The Noldor brings some with them. But then, through a a special grace of pity by Manwe and Varda, they didn't let it fail. There was a blessing that was put upon the Western Corn. So this was a low-key, under-the-radar blessing given to the exiles by Manwe and Varda. Now, I don't have a problem with the apparent inconsistency of that. Right, like I'm banishing you. We're laying the doom, you know, of the Noldor upon you. Um, But uh, but we're going to bless the grain. Like the the sort of inconsistency there doesn't bother me. Um, That they should have a special show a special grace, not only to the Noldor themselves, but to others in Middle Earth through the blessing of this grain. Um, That seems to me to fit with even despite the ban. Right. Um, the band's not merely spiteful, right? The exiling isn't, isn't just, uh, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, emotional retribution against the Noldor. Right. Um, uh, so yeah, that some special grace of pity might be involved seems to me to make perfect sense. Fine. Um, But what I emerged from, and I might be wrong, I might be, like, kind of taking this the wrong way, maybe you guys felt differently about it, but at the end of this chapter, I felt like the art of the queens was diminished. I had always thought that it was the queen who made the lembus that made the lembus special, right? Um, That it was made with, I mean, presumably... Good green right I, I mean I didn't think she made it out of you know like like real good quality ingredients, you know, but um I didn't think that's what made it special. I didn't think it was made out of magic wheat if it's I'm tempted to say if it's just bread made out of magic wheat, well, that's still cool, right I mean hey, it's like the bread of the gods like that's not it's not that that's it's not that there's nothing awesome about that. It's just that it's awesome in a different way. And the difference, the direction of the difference to me seems to be to reduce the... Uh, it lowers Goadriel, right? It lowers Goadriel. Um, the awesomeness of Lembus isn't down to her, apart from the fact that she is apparently the caretaker of the last patch of Western corn in Middle-earth, Right? Um, which is cool. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, no, Alyssa, I think my problem is it makes it more like King's Foil. Well, no. Maybe, I'm glad you brought that up, Alyssa. On the one hand, King's foil, Athalos, is, is like a, it's a magic plant, right? But it does seem to be a magic plant that is specially activated. You know, life to the dying in the king's hand lying, right? Uh, if it's lying in somebody else's hand, then not so magical, Right. It's not going to bring life to the dying. Um, if that is, in fact, the right way to read the rhyme of the learned lore master of Gondor. Um, it is, of course, possible that that rhyme is merely a prophetic rhyme for telling the day when it shall bring life to the dying, as indeed is happening in that very room, uh, being fulfilled in front of them at that very moment. Um, Uh, so it's possible that that's just a prophecy and it doesn't mean Athalas only works for kings Um, it works for anybody Um, but I I take from Yorath's testimony right? Yorath's reaction to the scent of Athalas in the room when Aragorn is overseeing the process, right? When it's lying in the hand of the king. Suggests to me that she's experiencing something then that she's never experienced before. She has smelled Athelas put in boiling water before. Right? it's not like, in a sense, there's no art, right, that Aragorn is doing. I mean, it's not hard. You boil water, you chuck the herbs in you sniff it, right? Like it's not, it's, it's, there's no secret recipe there. Um, you know, there's no, uh, there's no 11 herbs and spices. It's, it's, that's just, it's about the simplest recipe you can make. And indeed we know explicitly that, um, we know explicitly that she's smelled it before. She's, she talks about how an infusion of it is used, um, and that means like an infusion that means like athalas tea basically right um so she's she's had she's she's been around boiled athalas before right boiled kingsfoil before but yet she seems to be having a different experience this time or realizing a new thing about it that she had never realized before so i think it is possible that it's being activated in some sense that there is um there is something, I'm, I'm I'm hesitant to use the word art there. Again, I don't think it's, because I don't think it's like a technique that, uh, um, I don't think, you know, uh, uh, Aragorn could write a manual, right? Unlike the proper use of Athelos. Like, you've got to throw it into the boiling water just so, right? I don't, I don't think there's art there. Um, whereas, presumably, there is art involved in the making of lembus. I mean, art. I say that because he says so, right? He uses the word several times. The art was known only to herself suggests that there is a technique, right? There is a technique of making the bread that she knows and that she's taught to others, um, her daughter and her granddaughter. Um, but uh, but no one else has that particular technique of making lumbas, even if they had all the Western corn that they needed. Um, anyhow, so... Um, But maybe it is... So, again, with uh, King's Foil, is the magic, you know, is the power, is the virtue, to use Aragorn's word, um, well, to use the word that's at issue there with the loremaster, master, um, the virtue is in the plant, but it seems to be also in the combination of the plant and the king, right? Um... It doesn't seem to me like it's distributed quite as, like the, the virtue of Lembus is distributed quite so evenly here, right? I, as I said, I wasn't, I wasn't a fan. not a fan of the magic corn. Um, uh, yeah, now, Greg, I, 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 I agree that's interesting, right? Greg says, I was first struck by the idea that Tolkien gave even a food product an aspect of elvish fading. It's a kind of a sad story. Yeah, the, the, the loss right the western corn and waybread were lost forever in middle earth um it becomes like another way of feeling that that loss right of feeling the uh the decline into the uh into the dominion of men um but um yeah yeah um right john Beryl is thinking similarly um that it gets into the theme of 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 fading again yes yes i agree um But, um, yeah, I don't know. I uh, I am not saying, Karina, that I have a problem with the idea of Magic Wheat. I don't. I'm not saying it doesn't break anything for me. I found it not... um, I didn't find it puzzling. I didn't find it uh, off-putting. I just found it vaguely disappointing. And it's like finding out that there's a trick, you know? Um, like I thought in seeing Limbus, I was seeing elf magic, you know, like Sam used to talk about. But I'm just seeing it is magic, but it's not really elf magic. Again, it's not down to go ad She knows the ingredients. She knows the she has the ingredients and she knows the art and it's not nothing but um but it's just it's it's bread made with magic wheat right um it's a reduction i think of the um well no chad i chad is wondering if i'm having a a similar letdown to the midichlorians no no much less profound than that. Um, Lembus, that is magical because it's made with magic wheat, remains magical. Right? Um, uh, Like the whole midi thing makes the Force a little bit less the Force, in a sense, right? Certainly less mystical. Um, Yeah. So, the magic wheat is still magical. Right? Um but uh but but it's of a different kind right it makes galadriel less the source of its power than merely the transmitter of that which was given to her which again is not okay that's not, not like that's a bad story like it's not horrible it just um it just changes. Like I, I was, I was, I was ready. I had always been ready to give Galadriel all the pro, all the props for the lumbar, right? Um but that was her. Even I, I, knew that she didn't invent. I mean, okay, I thought that she invented it when I first read the Lord of the Rings. Later on, I learned that she didn't invent it; that it came from uh, Melian, presumably. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, but it's it's not even like you know finding out that somebody's special recipe was handed down to them by their grandma or something that doesn't make the thing that they cook less special right the thing that they, that your friend cooks or you know your mom or whoever it is doesn't make that less special that that recipe was handed down, um, that that doesn't have that effect. But if I knew that it was that like the delicious thing that was being made or this you know, again this magical thing is only magical because it happens to be made with this magical ingredient, right? Um, then I would think less of the cooking, right? I would think less of the making. Um, anyway, I just found. That it, um, yes, exactly, Stephen. It's not that it diminishes Lembus, but it diminishes Goadriel. And I was surprised by that. I mean, again, re- reading Unfinished Tales in the versions of the Goadriel story, her stock just kind of kept rising in Tolkien's mind, right? Um, uh, over the course of time. And so I wasn't expecting. A version of the story, which basically gave her a sort of a bit part, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. So it's, it's the fact that it kind of diminished Goadriel was what surprised me and slightly disappointed me. It's almost like, like <laughs> yeah. Sam wants to see elf magic and is shown the mirror. And at the end, he says, I don't want to see no more magic, right? Um, but he's not had a disillusionment experience, right? Um, uh, yeah. Okay. All right, for, all right, all right, Kara, let's see. It's not her cooking that makes it good it's goadriel's preservation of a piece of elven home in middle earth that makes her special okay i can accept that but i still find her diminished um yep no, like it's fine. I don't it's not that I think it's a bad thing. It's not that I think it's a bad thing. But yeah. Like I am merely the custodian of greater things that were handed down. Um I can't really make magic bread. I just have preserved the magic grain and um Uh, I've preserved the magic grain and know the recipe for using the magic grain to make the magic bread. Um, But it's not my magic. Like, the magic of Lembus is not my magic. Um, It's just the magic that's baked into the wheat, right? So, to speak. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I want an elfin queen barefoot and in the kitchen. Look, whatsoever she was wearing on her feet, and I would not rule out that she was barefoot while cooking, that she was in the kitchen was not my invention, right? I mean, one way or the other, she's still making the bread, right? Uh, it's still an art known only to herself, her daughter, and her granddaughter. So uh, it's, it's the question is how significant... I wanted... It's not that I wanted her in the kitchen. She's in the kitchen, Carrie. I just wanted her time in the kitchen... To be magical. I wanted her to be, I wanted to be a magic kitchen, not just a kitchen in which magical ingredients are processed. That's it. That's it. That's all I wanted. I wanted the magic. I wanted the, the kitchen to be the, I wanted the baking to be the magic itself. That's it. That's what I wanted. Um, that's what I wanted. Um, and uh, yeah. And I, I think in part, I was primed to believe that. Um, that is that it was the baking. The act of baking is where the magic lies because I, um, I I look on baking as a form of magic every time it happens. Actually, um, I um, I I cook a lot. I do all the cooking in my family, but I don't bake. Baking seems to me a magical process uh, and a gift that I generally don't have. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. So, like, it's, I, uh, I, that's where, you know, that's where I saw the magic happening. That seems to be not where the magic is. But, yeah, yeah, Michael says it's, you know, sort of, um, a question of, she's in the kitchen either way, but, you know, whether she's more of a chef or and less of a line cook, yeah, exactly. It makes her feel a little bit more like a line cook, right? Um... Part of the production process, but it's not, it's not really where the specialness is, right? It's all in the magic wheat. Anyway, whatever. I don't have <laughs> serious issues here. I'm just saying, was a little bit surprised. Um, uh, was a little bit surprised. Okay. Moving on. I was a little bit surprised by this, too. Okay, so in the philological discussion of the word Felagund, Finrod's nickname. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that Originally, Felagund was his name, right? So Finrod was the name that was given to the son of Fingolfin, right? So you had Fingolfin and Finrod, his son. um, And and Felagund was just called Felagund from the beginning. Okay. Um, Then he decided that Finrod... Was going to be his name, Feligund's name, and that Feligund was just going to be his was going to be his nickname, right? And one of the things that I was a little bit unclear about is where that dis- where this essay, this discussion, this philological discussion here um, that's published in this chapter, where this lies in relationship to that choice. Had he already made the decision? to sort of demote Felagund, or did he uh, you know, to just nickname or is this why? Is this the process by which he made that decision? Right? I'm not sure. But anyway, here we go. The Cinderin stem, Filig, is mostly confined to specific places in the old tales of Beleriand. Its chief interest comes from its use in the title or by name of King Finrod Felagund said traditionally to have meant den-dweller, or specifically brock, badger. At which point I was like, wait, what? Uh, That is not the translation of Felagund that is given. The Silmarillion does not say that 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 Felagund translates to badger, right? So hang on now. Come at me again here. All right. This puzzled the earlier lore masters. Well, it puzzled the later lore masters too. This puzzled the earlier lore masters <clears throat> since the ending gund could not be interpreted from Eldarin. The Sindarin word fella could be derived from a stem felga or filga. It was used of minor excavations made by wild animals as dens or lairs, and also as temporary dwellings by wandering folk, dwarvish or elvish. It was usually distinguished from the larger caves of geological formation used and extended by stoneworkers. This is where the later lore master, by which I mean myself, um, got even more confused. Well, not confused, but interested, a little bit puzzled. Right, F- that the root fil- felga or filga, the root of felagund, there um, is it means an excavation, right? Dweller in caves, we're told, is what felagund means. Uh, in um, uh, so, I a cave. Was how, from based on what we're told in the Silmarillion, cave is how I'd always understood what the, what the fella part of fella meant, right? But here we're told explicitly that although it does mean excavation, right, um, it explicitly does not mean. It is usually distinguished from the larger caves of geological formation used and extended by stoneworkers, workers. Oh, yes, yeah, Hewer hewer of Caves. Exactly, Chad, thank you. Hewer of Caves. Um, So, Hewer of Caves, but fella does not mean cave. It means cave-like thing, which is definitely not a cave, right? Not a geological formation. And so, and, and, and notice that he rules out even... Okay, so it doesn't mean a geological formation. And if he had just said that, I would have been like, okay, 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 I can understand that. So it's like a parallel, right? Um, Just as an animal, such as it might be a badger, right? um, Might find some hole, right? Or some kind of small, uh, you know, I don't know, like depression or something and be like, Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this and I'm gonna I'm gonna expand it, right? And I'm gonna make it into my den or lair. So that's why Feligund was called the hewer of Caves Chad, because he finds this cave, right? But it doesn't it's not just that he lives in the cave, right? That he then expands it into his own lair. Like, you know so parallel to a badger, right? Um but the answer is no, no. He covers that. It is usually distinguished from larger caves of geological formation used and extended by stone workers. So the extension by stone workers is explicitly folded into what this word does not mean. Okay, so felagund, whatever it means, definitely does not, explicitly does not mean hewer of caves. It was thus naturally used of the sets of badgers, which seem to have existed in great numbers in parts of Beleriand. Another thing I learned about Beleriand reading this chapter it was, lousy with badgers. Apparently, there's badgers everywhere in Beleriand. There were a number of such fili, plural of fella. On the uh, the uh, feli from Felgai, on the west bank of the lower narag River where it flowed along the feet of the great hills, the hunter's wold. Um, So there are badgers all over the place. So Finrod is named, his name doesn't mean hewer of caves. His name means I don't know what, digger of sets? Right? Like, I'm the um, the burrow maker, Finrod, the 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 lair digger, not definitely not hewer of caves, whatever it is, right? Um, he was, uh, yeah. Now, here's what I like about this. Actually, kind of love about this. It makes Finrod's name a joke, right? It makes Finrod's nickname almost a teasing nickname. Um, That it's like it's a humble nickname when he establishes his fabulous underground realm. He establishes a fabulous underground realm instead of taking a name, you know. From now I shall be called Finrod, Lord of Fabulous Underground... Uh, Like maybe Lord of Guttering Caves or something like that, right? Instead of taking a title like that, Finrod says, From now on I shall be known as King Finrod the Badger. There you go. Because, yeah, Chad, apparently... Finrod don't care, right? Um yeah, it is sort of like Aragorn choosing Strider as the name of his house. Yes. There's a there's like a it's he's make he's having fun at his own expense by naming himself King Finrod the Badger. That's awesome. Right, I mean, I love Finrod before. I love Finrod even more now that I know that he's a Hufflepuff, right? Um, And proud of it. (laughs) I mean, this is fantastic. I just love this, Um, and that he sees the Badgers, right, in all of their, and and he sees himself as parallel to all of these little badger sets that are all... And, you know, there's a whole bunch of them along the river, right? So he's going to burrow himself in like one of these badgers. Um, The humility of Finrod just, like, went up several pegs, right? Um, I think, in this. Um, And I also love the fact... So, of course, what's happening here? Why is... This entry being written, right well, this entry is being written because it seems um the word feligund doesn't work anymore like you can see that you know the, his languages have changed to the point now where that that it no longer he's kept it right This is the problem is that all you know his his names are all derived from his linguistic system, and that's the what makes his naming his name so. So powerful and effective, right? But the problem is when you continually tweak and develop your language system, right um, you know if your hand and mind are not at rest or, or something, um, if you're wait, hang on a second I'm losing I'm losing the phrase how did it, how did it go? If you're restless and unsatisfied with all that you do and you keep tweaking uh, your language systems, then you keep making your own names obsolete, right. And when that happens, you only have two choices. You either have to change the names, which he often did, right, from Melko to Melkor with a C to Melkor with a K, right, I mean, all those changes that we see, um, th- those often happen. So you either have to change the name and then make sure you try to be consistent with that, or you have to write an entry like this and say, this name is a Linguistic mystery, which needs to be solved because the ending gund could not be interpreted from Elderin. So, you know, like, how can we possibly explain that? And uh, here we go. Um, uh, yeah, there we go. Thank you, Alyssa. Alyssa says the, the Badger explanation is late. So this passage is probably 1969. Um, and the note which says... Felagund means cave hewer, um, is from earlier, from probably from 1959. So it comes 10 years later. So, um, good. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting, interesting, fascinating stuff. Um, but, um, Finrod the Badger. Uh, now I'm trying to figure out how to work that into film film. We still have a little bit of time. Finrod isn't quite dead yet. Okay. Let's keep going a little bit here. The Ban of Manwe. Okay. Now, Glorfindel of Gondolin was one of the exiled Noldor, rebels against the authority of Manwe, and they were under a ban imposed by him. They could not return in bodily form to the Blessed Realm in any manner not while the ban was in force. Footnote to In Any Manner By physical means, as by a ship it was made impossible, after the rape of the Telerian ships at Alquilonde, nor could any living creature of Middle Earth, such as birds, however strong, cross the great sea. And all the Valar and Maiar were forbidden by Manwe to set foot on the land where the Noldor dwelt, some say on any soil of Middle Earth at all. What's the first thing that you picture in your head when you hear the sentence All them Valar and Maiar were forbidden by Manwe to set foot on the land where the Noldor dwelt? What's the first what's the first image in your head? You know, what's the first image in my head. Yes, Arthur, exactly. Um, Ulmo, appearing to Tuor. Right? Well, what about it, Arthur? Did Omo break the ban of Manway? Nope. Totally didn't, right? Omo doesn't break the ban. Does he set foot on the land where the Noldor dwelt? He's standing in the water. Yeah. No, he's like a couple yards off the shore, right? Totally not cheating, right? totally not cheating right? (laughs) Love that right? Uh, Olmo is the rebel of the Valar. He's not defying the rules. He's not defying Manway, right? But he is bending them a lot further um than uh, uh he's bending them as far as they will go right? Um I haven't crossed the line, Manway, but here I am with my toes right up against it, right? It's all good. Didn't break the ban. Um, yeah, <laughs> he is indeed, Meow, pushing boundaries in his workplace. Um, that is just what Omo is doing. Love that. Uh, but anyway, okay. That's so Omo, isn't it? <clears throat> um, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, anyway. But anyway, back to the uh, ban. Okay, this ban was, as is told in the Silmarillion, never fully revoked. Though after the defeat and downfall of Melkor and his creatures from Middle-earth, a general pardon was granted to all the exiles who, could, who would accept it. Those who then left Middle-earth did not dwell actually in Valinor, but in a special region of the great Isle of Arisea that was set aside for them. There they could, they could visit Valinor from time to time, but could not abide there long it must be supposed that Manwe intended to maintain the ban unless commanded by the One to lift it in any particular case or in general, until some change unforeseen by him in the unfolding of the history of Middle-earth occurred. Okay. um, The ban of Manwe is so that it's called the ban here and that phrase is not used in the Silmarillion right um now of course Tolkien when Tolkien alludes to the Silmarillion he's not alluding to this book which wasn't published until after he died right um he didn't know exactly what the contents of this volume were going to be right um But what we, what he's referring to is the Silmarillion material, right? All the collected stuff uh, that he, um, that he wrote. Uh, And so it's told in the Silmarillion stuff that that ban was never fully revoked, but it also wasn't called that, at least not in any of the earlier stuff. Um, is it called the Ban of Manwe. And calling it that, using that word, um, puts us, should put us explicitly into mind of um, Numenor, right? Just as uh, somebody was talking about Numenor. Um, yeah, Chad was talking about Numenor. The Ban of the Valar against the Numenorians there's an obvious parallel here, right? When the Valar. This happens after the exile of the Noldor, and it's part of the hiding of Valinor, right? This is why, like, not even birds can get across the sea anymore. Valinor is being cut off, protected from everything else. So it's not just about the Noldor, right? though it certainly has the effect of walling off the Noldor and preventing them returning, right? Um, The thing that I find most remarkable about this ban is the forbidding of the Valar and Maiar to set foot on the land where the Noldor dwelt, Which, it says... It must be supposed that Manway intended to maintain the ban until some change unforeseen by him in the unfolding history of Middle-earth occurred. When, when was that? When did that happen? Did it happen? Right? We don't really know. We don't really know. Now, Melian was already over there, Arthur. Um, she predated the The ban. So he didn't recall her. Indeed, he couldn't recall her. Remember, she's bound to the roa now, because of the beginning of of Luthien. So she exactly she gets grandmothered in, Chad. That's exactly it. Um, she gets grandmothered in. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. One of the things, there are two things that this immediately makes me think of. Again, the banishing of the exiles, the banishing of the Noldor, seems to me, that's not the news item on here. To to me, it's the forbidding of the Valar and the Maiar. That's the news item, right? Do the the Valar not pay attention to Middle-earth anymore? Are they not involved anymore? Well, perhaps not, right? Um, And yes, Michael, that's the other thing that I can't help but think of. And that is, it makes the exception of the Astari more significant, right? But notice also, Michael, it's not actually a breaking of the ban, right? Right? It's not. It's not a breaking of the ban. The Istari, I mean. They're Maiar, yes, but they're incarnate now, like they're they're incarnated into bodies. It's not just he gave permission to these five Maiar to walk around, you know, to adapt, adopt visual form, visible forms, and wander around Middle Earth. That's not what happened, right? it's almost like he found a loophole in his own ban, right? Not that he exactly needs a loophole, right? But that is to say, what what I'm saying is, I don't think that the Astari are proof that the ban was lifted at that point. Um, maybe, but, um, but it doesn't seem necessary. Um, the Fall of Numenor does seem like a good candidate, uh, Michael, in other ways, but I'm not sure I believe in that. I think it more likely uh, to be the Dominion of Men is the kind of change unforeseen by him in the unfolding of the history of Middle-earth that is being uh, referred to here. Um, Yes, Autoflagellator exactly. The War of Wrath. Aeonway leading the the, uh, armies um, in the War of Wrath is the clear exception, right? Um, that's the act of grace, the the sort of reversal there. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay, but more on this. Because, of course, let's think more about Numenor. So we have this debate, right? Um, the ban of Manwe. Good idea, bad idea. What do we think about that? Um, some of the lore masters later considering the events which led to the lifting of the ban, as far as the elves were concerned, debated this matter. The one, all-seeing, knew of the imposition of the ban, and permitted it. He also permitted its maintenance for long years, in the terms devised by Menwe, though these might seem too severe even on the Noldor, and were a great loss to the other elves, and also to other folk and creatures." This, of course, gets into the, like, where were the Valar to help out the humans and everybody else, right? Like, okay, it's fine. So they have a grudge against the Noldor. Like, you're going to punish everybody for that? You're not going to help anyone because you want to see the Noldor suffer? I mean, I'm not saying that that's a fair characterization of what was going on, but that's kind of the, you know, the argument on the ground, right, that's being addressed here, right? Um Okay. Anyway, in particular, making any communication between the Noldor and the Valar impossible prevented the Noldor in particular, or as a people, from expressed repentance or pleading for pardon and help. If it's not possible to communicate, then like they don't even get a chance to repent. And that seems like a bad idea, right? So, so the ban of—these so these are arguments, right? about like how the, why the, like reasons to think that the ban of Manway was a horrible idea, right? First of all, it paints everybody with the same brush, right? Okay. The Noldor are banished, but everybody else gets hosed also by it. Second, you're even cutting off the opportunity of repentance. Shouldn't that be a thing? Right? Shouldn't it, shouldn't you, shouldn't you be able to, shouldn't they be able to repent or ask for help? Right? Um, that doesn't seem good. Some, therefore, of these lore masters concluded that Manwe and the Council of the Valar erred. Because of their anger, and also because though they possessed foreknowledge of history since the making of the music and the vision that Eru thereafter presented to them of the unfolding history that it had generated, certain important matters had become dark to them. It's, it's understandable that Manwe screwed this up, right? Um, like, it seems like this was a mistake. It seems like the ban of Manwe is a bad call, right? So is that is, is that an acceptable idea? Does that even make sense? Um, is that something that can be sort of like logically permitted? And the lore master's answer is, sure. Of course it makes sense, right? They do possess some foreknowledge of history, but their foreknowledge is imperfect, right? Some matters are dark to them. They had no part in the creation of the Children of Eru, elves and men, and could not ever with complete assurance foresee the actions working of their uh, independent wills, right? So there you go. Um, they There's a lot they don't know about elves and men. So can they make mistakes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they can totally make mistakes, and this sure looks like a mistake, right? So this feels like a pretty good argument, but the wiser ones among them rebuked them, that is, rebuked the other loremasters, right? Saying, ye cannot say that the Valar erred in so grave a matter, seeing that Eru knew and permitted the actions and commands of Manwe, for this is to attribute error to him. Moreover, ye misrepresent and exaggerate the workings of the ban, and so call in question its justice. As far as concerns the Noldor, they obtained precisely what they demanded freedom from the sovereignty of Manwe, and therefore also from any protection or assistance by the Valar, or indeed any meddling with their affairs. They had been advised and solemnly taught by Manwe to what straits and griefs they would come, relying only on their own wisdom and power. But they chose it anyway, and they got what they asked for, right? So you can't say it's unjust. All right. Um, What happens? What do we see going on here, right? I love it when Tolkien does this, by the way. I love it when Tolkien gives us both sides of an argument. I I, I usually find Tolkien's really good at that. My favorite example of this is in the story of Alderion and Arendis, right? Whenever I'm reading Alderion and Arendis, I'm always most convinced by whoever's talking at the time, (laughs) right? And then the other person talks and I'm like, oh, that's a really good thought too, right? Um, (laughs) But anyway, um, so I... Yeah, as I, said, as I said, I love, uh, I love it when, when, when Tolkien does this, right? Um, neither of these arguments are excellent arguments. I don't buy the wiser lore master's arguments. I'm not saying I think they're wrong, but I don't buy it. You cannot say that the Valar erred in so grave a matter, seeing that Eru knew and permitted the actions and commands of Manwe for this is to attribute error to him. That's a fallacious argument, right? Um, Didn't he also know and permit the actions of Melkor in marring Arda as well? That didn't happen in a corner. Eru knew that was happening and permitted it in the sense of not smiting him and preventing it. He might have prevented it presumably had the power to prevent it, but didn't do that, right? And yet one does not say that the evil brought about by Melkor is attributed to Eru because he permitted it, right? So I find that a a super weak argument by the wise lore masters. Um against um you know against the argument of the unwise, or the less wise loremasters. Um, uh, now, the second argument is much better. The argument as concerns the Noldor, right? Um, that they got what they were asking for and obtained precisely what they demanded. Freedom from the sovereignty of Manway. That all that Manway did was grant them what they requested. Um, that seems to me perfectly fair. Um so anyway what's going on here and I just love this who are the lore masters in question who are the lore masters in question which which lore masters are we talking about here well he tells us at least he tells us in footnotes that these are numenorian loremasters these are these are numenorian loremasters that are debating here um this is a debate about the ban of er- of of manwë against the noldor right but it's also at the same time kind of a debate about the ban of the valar against the numenorians as well, right? Um, this is a debate between two sets of lore masters who have not yet gotten to the point of actually debating, should we obey the Valar in their ban that prevents us from sailing to Valinor or not, right? That question's not on the table yet. But it's near the table, right? It's a subtext of this argument. Because it's like, There's an axe being ground here, right? And the axe is when the Valar, when the elder king makes a decree, such as, for instance, to throw out an arbitrary example, a ban that he establishes against an entire people, right? Sometimes when he does that, it's wrong. He's just wrong. And it's actually not necessary, or maybe even good, to obey that ban because it was a bad ban in the first place, right? Real reason to think that it was a bad ban, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Just in case this ever becomes locally relevant, right? Uh, so you can see that simmering. Right beneath the surface. And even in the wise lore masters, again, I don't really buy their arguments. I don't think those, I think Tolkien could have made stronger arguments um, against the first set, right? But we don't see the stronger arguments. At least not, least not there. There are some, maybe some more other ones, but but again, like, I, I, I don't, this is not, he doesn't like set up a straw man argument and then knock it down. There's more going on here, right? He makes this entire discussion of the ban of Manway itself a part of the story of Numenor, right? Um, we can see this as a state. We can almost date this, like in Numenorean history, can't we? Um, you know, we can kind of tell it's, it's, it's after the initial contentment of the first kings, but before we start to openly question the Valar. But you can see we're starting to think in that direction, right? We're starting to get there. And you could see, I think you can kind of still see it even on both sides, right? Even the stronger argument that they're making As far as concerns the Nolar, they obtained precisely what they demanded. Okay. Um, How is that going to play out if that same logic is applied to the Numen... when that same logic is applied to the Numenorean situation? Right? They didn't ask to be banished. They didn't ask to be separated. Right? They asked to be in fellowship. With their friends and allies, right? Whom they're being kept away from arbitrarily by the Ban Ban of the Valor, right? Um, So, um, anyway, really cool thing going on here. So, you know, again, just the use of the word ban put me in this Numenorean frame of mind to start with. And then as I went through, I was just like, this is the coolest thing. Like, he's writing two different stories at the same time here, right? This is so cool. All right. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna stop there. So, uh, okay, I didn't quite get to 11, but I think I got through eight. What's my next slide? My next slide is, uh, okay, no, it's not. My next slide is on eight, but it's just a footnote of eight. Okay, so we're almost there. We'll get to the Eagles next time. All right. Um, so one more, just a footnote there, and then we'll go, let's see, after the ban, I don't have too much to say about Elvis journeys on horseback. Um, okay, so let's say let's go up through um, fifteen, right? That's ambitious. Yeah. Okay, sixteen is Gladrin Kelborn. Let's not do that. Through fifteen for next week. That's what we'll do. We're moving right along. All right, thanks, everybody. So we'll uh, uh, continue our discussion of part three next time, moving right along. Um, Thank you for joining me for another fun discussion of the nature of Middle-earth. Been loving learning lots of things together as we go through this book. It's been so much fun. and. Uh, we'll see some of you guys at TexMoot this weekend and uh, uh, maybe some others at sunshine moot the weekend after um, so looking forward to seeing to seeing folks again don't forget signumuniversity.org slash events uh, if you would like to join in because there's still time to do it for both of those events thanks everybody good night now